Taking sports to another level. Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Exploring the latest headlines and going behind the scenes with in-depth interviews, hearing personal stories and the impact of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. What time is it? Welcome, everyone. This is Rich Take on Sports, and we are back with this week's episode, episode number four. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you are listening through whatever format that might be. And thank you for being an investor by investing your time to listen. The official launch with our first three episodes was last week, and the support and encouragement has been overwhelming, and I greatly appreciate all of the feedback. And as I've mentioned, one of the things that we'll be focusing on in this podcast is the unique ability of sports of uniting and connecting people. So I want to make sure we are connected and that I can hear from all of you. Please follow me on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. You can also email me, Richmond at richtakeonsports.com. And don't forget, you can find Rich Take on Sports on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and also even our website, richtakeonsports.com. There you can listen, download, and even subscribe. This week, we've got a jam-packed episode with former Cincinnati Bengals and Tampa Bay Buccaneers head coach Sam Weish as our guest. And I know many of you millennials, you're not going to know who he is. He coached in the mid-90s. However, a lot of you baby boomers and Generation X, you'll definitely remember him. And especially one of his most famous moments when he was head coach with the Bengals in 1989 and some comments that he made to the crowd. It was during a snowy game against the Seattle Seahawks and the Cincinnati fans were getting in an uproar and started throwing snowballs at the refs because of their displeasure, what they felt were some questionable calls. Now you have to remember at this time, both the Bengals and their crosstown rival, Cleveland Browns, were competitive and were good. So this rivalry was intense. And there's already a rivalry between Cleveland and Cincinnati, regardless of sports. And Sam only helped fuel this rivalry when he took the mic and made this announcement in an attempt to regain some order from the fans. Will the next person that sees anybody throw anything onto this field, point them out, or get them out of here, you don't live in Cleveland! Just classic from Sam. What a way to unite the fans back together and focus on the game. And now many people probably forget that he coached the Bengals in Super Bowl twenty-three, barely losing to Joe Montana and the 49ers in the last 35 seconds. But what they do remember are those comments that he made during that game. All right, now let's not waste any more time. Here's the rich spotlight. Shining brightly to share the stories of people in sports. This is the Rich Spotlight. Our special guest again this week is Sam Weish, former head coach of the Cincinnati Bengals and Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And Sam led the Bengals to Super Bowl 23 and actually became one of only four individuals in NFL history to have played in a Super Bowl as a player, to have coached in a Super Bowl as an assistant coach, and to have also coached in a Super Bowl as a head coach, and ultimately losing Super Bowl 23 to the San Francisco 49ers 
and one of his best friends, head coach Bill Walsh. And in this interview, you'll learn more about that long friendship with Bill Walsh and the unique bond that they had. And so with such a rich history in sports, one of the first things I wanted to know about Coach Weish was his life growing up early on and why he gravitated towards sports. Well, I I grew up with a younger brother that was the better athlete by far, and uh, he was a full scholarship quarterback at the University of Tennessee. I was a walk-on quarterback at Furman University, got a three-year scholarship before it was over with. But um, we grew up playing all the sports, doing everything, you know, uh, competing against each other in every aspect. Nobody ever said, please pass the salt. They said, give me the salt or I'm coming across the table right now. (laughs) One of those kind of things. And, um, but Bubba would, uh, my brother's nickname was Bubba and, uh, Bubba would um, maybe have a baseball bat, not have a whiffle ball golf ball, because I was interested in golf. He wasn't at all. And we had a picture window in the front of the house. And, and if I hit the picture window with a whiffle ball, which wouldn't break it, that was a strike. So he had to go after anything that was getting inside that uh, that window. And then he would hit it. And we lived on a fairly uh, quiet street at the time. And uh, you know, if it hit it in, into the street, that was a home run. And then we had different areas where it was single double so we we competed like that and then uh high school did the same thing played basketball played football i was i was a third string quarterback in high school on the offensive side of the ball but i did start on defense so i was but if you remember those old programs you used to have with the pepsi insert and it would have your s white 12 that meant you were a senior and then um maybe it would have your weight or something. I don't know. I don't think it had much more than that. And then, but in the starting lineup, it had T. Condry. Tommy Condry was our starter, also a senior. And then number two guy, B. White, 10, sophomore. And I was two years ahead of him. I started early in high school, by the way. I wish I'd have started, waited over the next year because I would have been more mature. And then, um, uh, then there was Sam White underneath your sophomore brother. You're talking about adolescent pro- <laughs> problems with your peers and trying to live with that. But we we got along great. And um, uh, after playing at Furman University, I uh, went to the minor league uh, football um, in West Virginia with the Wheeling Ironman of the Continental Football League. I, I actually broke my finger my senior year, the first game against Davidson, and they had to tape my pointer finger to my middle finger and I played and, and I got the nickname Three Finger Sam that way because I only had three fingers on but I got big hands and big feet and um, uh, then my senior year at the end of that after breaking my finger to start with I broke my back at the end a guy speared me in the uh, legal hit but he hit me right in the lower spine against the Citadel four minutes to go in the game in my, my career and uh but I recovered from it, never missed a, a down. The next year I was playing in Wheeling, and after a year of that, I wasn't going anywhere, and I went back, was going to the Medical College of Virginia okay. and to study hospital administration. I got a call from the University of South Carolina and said, we need a grad assistant. You'll be assigned to a young defensive backfield coach named Lou Holtz. And um, Lou uh, recognized right away that I still wanted to play, uh, get a shot at the pros. And uh, But if we played Alabama, for example, that week, I'd be the Alabama quarterback, you know, in a red shirt, and uh, they were just tagging off on me. But I could study more film and get more mannerisms and snap count right and really give them a good picture of what they were going to see on Saturday afternoon. Well, I got to that tryout right in the middle of final exams. And one of my uh, 
First year as a graduate student working on an MBA, which I finished a year later. Had the trial with the Bengals. There stood Paul Brown with his arms folded looking at me, and I, of course, knew who he was. Those that don't know, Paul Brown helped form the National Football League along with the Hallis family and the Rooney family and others. And um, there was the young quarterback coach named Bill Walsh, and he was standing there with his arms folded. And Rick Persano was a running back coach. He was later defense, uh, head coach at Detroit Lions. But anyway, I had a good workout. And during that workout, there was one incident that I think caught me my contract. It was a kind of a nasty day. I was the only quarterback. We had about 13 or 14 guys, a couple of tight ends, a couple of running backs, some defensive backs. And I was throwing the ball. They were told, bring that ball all the way back and hand it to Sam so that we don't we only have one ball. <laughs> That's all they had. <laughs> it's St. X High School in Cincinnati. And um but one guy caught a nice long pass, and he's about 30 yards out, and he lets it go. And I'm looking like I'm looking at you across over the shoulder of Bill Walsh, and I can see that ball coming right at him. And then it starts to fade with a little drift of the throw, and I can see it's going to miss him, but it's going to hit right beside us. And I'm looking eyeball, never take my eyes off of him because I want him to know, you know, eye contact's important. And I... Just as the ball arrived, I reached down with my left hand, and that ball stuck in my left hand. No second grab, no nothing, just boop. And, and I put it back, you know, pulled it back into my chest and kept looking. I barely looked away. I mean, for an instant, and then I was back. And I can remember Bill looking down at that ball and looking back up at me and saying, you know, this guy might be a maybe an athlete. Maybe he's 6'4", 220. He'd probably put on a few pounds to be a tight end if he can't play quarterback. That's right. So you were doing the Odell Beckham one-handed catches before uh, oh, Odell yeah. Beckham. Yeah, I set the trend. But it was uh, <laughs> uh, but it was, a, it was one of those instances, and I just have to think, as I think back on it, that that probably played into it. Anyway, I got a contract my first year, 1968. I was one of the original Cincinnati Bengals, an $11,000 contract. After I, you had no agents in those days. You sat down and Paul Brown told you what they were going to pay you, take it or leave it. So no negotiations? None. (laughs) There was never, of course, I didn't know what I was, I don't know what I would have said anyway. So again, so you really didn't have this like ultimate dream of continue playing football after Furman. It just just started. I did organically going that way. Yeah, but in fact, uh, my going into my senior year, Bob King, the head coach at Furman, called me into his office and said, you know, Sam, we're getting a lot of the scouts are asking about you because I was 6'4", 220. Okay. And so I, yeah. I said, we better go look at this guy. And um, if you have a good year, you, you've got a shot at playing pro football. I never even gave it a thought before that okay. sit yeah. down. And uh, of course, I gave it my best shot. But then the very first game, I break my finger, and yeah. um, it's a little different ball game. But I, I was able to to play out. And I didn't miss any games. Now, why did you cho- choose Furman, though? I, well, nobody else offered me a, a, a scholarship. I always grew up wanting to go to Georgia Tech. I grew okay. up in Atlanta, Georgia, yeah. Lenox Road. Helped build Lenox Square as a kid in my summer job. Uh, but I uh, did not get any offers from anybody because I was the third string quarterback, according to the program. You know, a lot of in those days, the scouting wasn't quite as in depth as it is today. And um, 
I had a buddy that was going to Furman, and he told me it's a great-looking school. We're going to, you know, come on, you try to come up here. And those days, we didn't have the interstate now. We had two-lane highway all the way from Atlanta to Furman. And my mom and I drove up, and we were going to meet with Coach King on a Saturday morning. And we sat on the steps of the old, what is now the old gym, for probably an hour, maybe an hour and a half. We just sat there because we weren't going. We'd already driven up there. We weren't turning around. Finally, somebody came by and said, what are you, you know, can I help you? Are you waiting on somebody? We told him about it. And they said, well, Coach King's playing golf this morning. (laughs) He said, but I'll get word out there to him. And and, um, they came back and said, you know, he's going to come over here at the turn. He's playing on number eight now. He'll come over at the turn and talk to you. Okay. And what he did, he came over and handed him to some mimeograph sheet of paper with a diagram of the campus and said, look around, tell me how you like it. Kind of sized me up to see if I was going to break in half if I got hit. And uh, I guess he thought I was big enough to do it and said, we, we'll like, you know, we'll uh, take you on as a walk-on. We can't give you a scholarship, but here we go. And that was the start of it. And um, from there, minor league, Lou Holtz, phone call, Bengals, <clears throat> which fits into my book. Here's a shameful advertising Please <laughs> insert. Do. Third and forever, we just um, agreed with the publisher to have this book hopefully come out in uh, June or July. Probably going to be July, though, just because of the uh, time involved to get the um, cover done and the um, graphics done and so forth inside. But third and forever is the the uh, analogy to football is third down is a drive stopping down. You don't make it on third down. You got a punt, maybe a field goal, but you you know you're giving the ball up most of the time. And in life's the same way. You go through life, there are things that happen to you that are, uh, you know, broken finger as a senior, uh, you play minor league ball, and it's not, you, know, you say to yourself, I don't think this is my future, and you have to make a call. And But then if you make that first down, if you succeed, if you overcome that, that bump in the road, uh, you get another set of downs and you get to try again. And I had a, I had a lot of them. I've unfortunately, had a lot of first downs. Yeah. Had some I had to punt. And it's really the uh, the story of, of that, of a player. Um, and uh, some of them are pretty serious. So one of them in particular is the AFC Championship game in 1988. We're the AFC champions. Um we uh, are playing the Buffalo Bills. Well, we're not the AFC champions. We're playing the Buffalo Bills for the AFC championship. The winner goes to the Super Bowl. We had the best record in football that year. We had a terrific team. The no huddle was the only, we were the only team running it for the fifth year in a row. We were, had put it, uh, some pretty good numbers on the board. Yeah. A lot of scoring and a lot of uh, extra plays because the game moved along a little faster. Mm-hmm. And uh, Boomer Sison was having a terrific year. Chris Collinsworth was on that team. Uh, Icky with the Icky Shuffle, if you remember those oh, days. Yes, I do. And uh, we had in, and a former Furman guy, Stanford Jennings, was on that team. A running right. back who ran back in the Super Bowl, ran back the kickoff for a yeah, touchdown. Kickoff. First right. one ever to do it in a Super Bowl. But. Um, at any rate, on the night before the AFC Championship, we're hosting the Buffalo Bills for the third time that season. We played them in preseason. We played them in the regular season, won both of those games. But they're good. Jim Kelly's at the peak yeah. of his game. Boomer's at the peak of his game. Uh, we're good. They're good. So it's tough to beat a good team three times, though. Uh, the night before, I get a phone call from Bob Trumpy, who had been in a meeting, a production meeting with CBS, with um, – Dick Enberg and Merlin Olson were doing the game the next day. And in walks um, some a league office official and the referee, Ed Hentak, I think, was, his, was doing that okay. game. 
And they walk in and they say, we just want to give you guys a heads up uh, so that you can tell the viewers tomorrow what's going on when we penalize Sam 15 yards for running the no huddle offense. And he said, the, now in the room also, by the way, is Bob Trumpy, of course, is in the room, is Don Shula from the competition committee, which was a little unusual for competition committee to have a rep, but it was the AFC Championship, okay. Super Bowl-bound um, winner. And um, they, <clears throat> Trumpy said it got dead silent. Trumpy called me at home said, sit down, I want to tell you what happened, you're not going to be happy. Okay. <laughs> and I wasn't. But he said, uh, Trumpy said it got dead silent. Finally, I asked the, uh, asked the official from the league, I said, is it illegal? And his answer was, it will be tomorrow. And then Trumpy said he got silent again, and he looked at Don Shula and said, Don, you're on the competition committee. Your motto is maintain the competitive balance of the game. Do you know anything about this? He lowered his head, didn't look anybody in the eye and said, no. Well, it was like, yes, but I can't say, mm-hmm. <laughs> say yes. And then Trump said it got really quiet then, and he looked at the official again and said, well, when are you going to tell Sam the game's tomorrow, for God's sakes? When are you going to tell the head coach and the, t- and the team? Are you going to tell him right before the game? And Trump, he said, the answer was, that's our plan, to tell me right before the game. Um, and they did. So we, we were ready. I was sitting, I had a little office off from the uh, locker room there at the stadium, and um um, the uh, the officials, two same two officials come into my office. Mike Brown, the Paul Brown's son, was also I think given a heads up about this. He was in the office, which was a little unusual, but it was the AFC Championship and a chance to go back to the Super Bowl for the second time. Forrest Gregg had taken him earlier in 1981, but um, they came in. They said, uh, no, no huddle. We're penalizing you 15 yards, unsportsmanlike conduct every time you do it. And I said, uh, pursued it a little bit farther. And they said, well, Marv Levy called Pete Rosell and they're good friends and said that he was going to fake injuries every time you ran the no huddle like Seattle had tried to do on third down only. They had Joe Nash, their nose tackle, fake injuries on third down. That way they could get their nickel personnel in the game on a passing down. But he was going to do it on every down, according to um, Marv Levy. His phone call with the commissioner was, I'm going to do it on every down. I'm going to stop the no huddle if Sam tries to run that no huddle. Even though we've been running it for five years, we ran it all year long. We're the number one offense in football with it that year among, I think, three of the last five years we've been number one, something like that, that way. And uh, <clears throat> then... I asked him, I said, uh, if the commissioner has agreed to do this, is that what you're telling me? Well, go get him on the phone right now. I want him to know that he is messing with the competitive balance of the game. And if we lose this game because of penalties like that, that'll be the first thing and everything that I'll be talking about because there's going to be the subject of the, of the of the season. For sure. Maybe of the decade that the commissioner has definitely uh, influenced the outcome of this ball game. He was gone maybe 15 seconds, and came, the little runner was, and he came back out and said, the commissioner said, uh, go ahead and run the no huddle if you want to. He'll deal with Marv Levy after the game. So he had been obviously told, if Sam gives you any pushback, don't, don't fight it. Don't Just tell him we'll, we'll uh, deal with it after the game. Well, we won the game again. We'd beaten them uh, twice before, all in good games. This was a 21-10, to 10, I think, final score, something like that. And it wasn't a very clean game. It looked kind of messy, but there were no fake injuries and uh, okay. a lot of uh, – 
stupid penalties like you do when you're playing a nervous and you're playing nervous because you know every little mistake could cost you a Super Bowl appearance. But uh, that year we drew, unfortunately, the 49ers again in their heyday. Unfortunately, the last game Bill Walsh would ever coach. So imagine that pregame talk was pretty serious. And, uh, of course, they still had Joe Montana, who I'd been his first coach in the pros and got to be on the winning side the first time the Bengals and the 49ers played. I was uh, on the winning side with the 49ers. And... um, with 34 seconds to go in the game after kicking, we kick, Cincinnati kicks a field goal to go up by three with about three minutes to go. Very similar to the Atlanta Falcon, New England Patriot uh, final moments right. this past uh, Super Bowl. And uh, Joe drives down, 34 seconds to go. After we drop an interception with 56 seconds to go, that would have ended the game. They only had one timeout left. We would have won the game, but... Unfortunately, it was dropped right in his hands. Perfect coverage defense. Next two plays later, he hits John Taylor in the left corner of the end zone. Touchdown, leaving us. We're watching it. It was a a great game. I mean, the networks were happy. The advertisers were happy. Everybody was right glued to that TV. It was one of the best games and still is one of the best finishes uh, along with this past year. But that was was the – you know, that's one chapter in this book, yeah. and it's also going to have stories about uh, things that are really not football-related so much as they are uh, just your a person's effort, mine, yeah. to get established as a um, player and then maybe as a coach and uh, getting to play in Super Bowl Seven with the Washington Redskins, even though I was just a holder. Billy Kilmer was a quarterback. Sonny Jurgensen was my roommate all year long, but he was hurt for the game. And that we played the Miami Dolphins the year they go 17 and 0, and then uh, Super Bowl 16 with the 49ers, which we win. Super Bowl 23 with the Bengals, which we came close. And that's my little trivia: that there are only four people in the history of the game that played in a Super Bowl, was an assistant in a Super Bowl, assistant coach, and a head coach in a Super Bowl. So you're obviously one. Or I wouldn't have brought it up. That's right. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm one, and Mike Ditka is another. Okay. Tom Flores is another, and Dan Reeves did it with Denver and Dallas. And uh, of the group— That's a great company. I'm in high cotton right there. I'm the low man on that totem pole in terms of uh, accomplishments. But uh, whenever we're together, and we are occasionally or have been at charity golf tournaments and things like that, Mike is probably the most annoying of the group um, (laughs) because he always says, yes, but I'm the only one that won all three times that I did that. And I'm I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek. Mike's a very good friend of mine, and I— so now from your playing days and you move into coaching, what was that journey like? And I mean, was there a point in time where, oh, I want to I want to coach now or how did that happen? Well, it happened. Um, let me go back just to the the lay some groundwork okay, here. Yeah. I'm still playing, but I'm in, I'm hanging on as a uh, backup quarterback, getting bounced around a little bit with okay. Detroit and St. Louis and the Buffalo Bills. Played my last season with Joe J. Simpson, so I got to meet a, a you know a uh, all star kind of a player and watch him. He was a beautiful runner. I have yeah. to say that. And it's hard for me to believe he was capable of doing what he is you know in jail for or. Yeah. Because yeah, when we knew him and the teammates knew him back in 1976, he was a prince of a guy and, and uh, would do anything in the world for you. But uh, I'm with the St. Louis Cardinals in the early part of 76 before I'm released and go to Buffalo. 
And we're playing the San Diego Chargers in a preseason game in Tokyo, Japan. I come down the elevator. Our time, you know, time schedules are all screwed up with the time change. And I come down, the elevator stops and open, the doors open, and there stands Bill Walsh. And I haven't seen him in maybe three or four years, but we were always – our chemistry was so good, and we were always on the same page, and we always kind of knew what we were, the other one was going to say next, that kind of thing. And we loved to play tennis against each other. So um, – as we go down, Bill says, let's go down and have a cup of tea downstairs at the New Otani Hotel in Sandy, in uh, Tokyo, Japan, right off from the Ginza there, the, the market area. And uh, we sit there. After about 40 minutes, I look at him with a little wry smile, and he knew he, he knew he got caught. I said, you're not having tea with me. You're interviewing me for a job. <laughs> and he said, well, maybe a little of both. And he said, if I ever get a head job, I want you to come coach the passing game for me. And I said, well, I'll love to do that. That would, you know, be uh, something I would enjoy. I yeah. think I'm probably at the end of my playing time, so I'll yeah. probably be available. Yeah. <laughs> but I had taken this, the money from Super Bowl Seven with the Redskins and started a sporting goods business that was doing very well. In fact, yeah, we, and that was in Greenville. In Greenville, Spartanburg, Charlotte, Rock Hill, Asheville. Okay. Uh, we had them, about 13 of them at one time. But um, I go back and the the next part of that story is I decided after two years with the sportingist business, there were too many cooks in the kitchen, okay. and I was going to quietly step out, leave my name on it, Sam White Sports World is what we called it, and uh, I applied for two head coaching jobs in North Carolina, high school jobs. Oh. On the day that I got rejections from both high schools saying that I was not qualified <laughs> because I had never been a coach before, which was true. Yeah. Uh, so they were, they said, thanks for your interest, but uh, we're going to look further. <laughs> On that same day, maybe less than an hour after I opened those letters and then started wondering, now what? Yeah. Bill Walsh calls and says, I'm going to be named the head coach of the 49ers mm. tomorrow. You'll be out here the day after tomorrow, and we'll talk about you being uh, in charge of the passing game. And uh, we all that happened, he gave me the title of director of the passing game. There okay. was no coordinatorship. No, not offensive coordinator, director <laughs> of passing. Well, game. Bill was the head coach, general manager, and okay. um, play caller, although I was on the headset with him, so we communicated okay. because we were on the same wavelength. I have to tell you that uh, we were very close friends, and his passing was a tough pill for everybody to swallow that knew him very well. But that was my start in coaching, and I was a rookie, and then we'd go, uh, we're going to take a guy named Phil, I mean, um, uh, from Stanford, um, I'll think of his name here. I go, went blank. We had another quarterback in the first draft in 1979, and Bill said, go down and work out a guy named James Owens at UCLA for me uh, about a week and a half before the draft, and see if you can find a quarterback to throw to him. Well, Joe Montana was living in Manhattan Beach at the time, and so I asked him to come over and meet us at 3 o'clock on the practice field at UCLA, and uh, I wanted to work him and – James Owens out. Yeah. Well, Joe had an out, unbelievably good workout. James Owens had a good one, but not, you know, not as memorable as Joe's. Yeah. I went back and I said, Bill, you got to go back now with me and let's take a look and bring somebody else maybe, because this kid's got something special about him. And it's the flight of the ball. The ball is nose up. It always arrives soft. I don't think we'll have many drops. It's extremely accurate throwing to a guy that he's never thrown to before. He yeah. still was. Got very quick feet, good deep drop. I mean, you know, carries the ball well, protects it with two hands. All the little things you look for when you break a quarterback down. Okay. 
uh, good head movement, eye movement, looking down the field. We had little drills to test that. So Bill and I go, go back down uh, early before the draft. The you know, draft was on weekends, and we, I think, went on a Monday to work out uh, prior to the draft. And on the way back, we didn't have a first-round pick, by the way. The 49ers' previous staff had traded it for O.J. Simpson in his latter years. So I was about to coach O.J. after I played with him you know, a couple of years before. But um, So we had a second round, but that was our first pick. And I'm thinking he's going to say, we'll take him in the second if he's still there. On the way back, he leaned over on the airplane. We were same row, but an aisle between us. And he said, tell the staff when you get in that we'll take Owens in the second, Montana in the third. And I said, Bill, I don't know if I'd wait around. We don't, I mean, you know, Steve Dills, that was the quarterback from Stanford. Yeah. Steve Dills is yeah, an outstanding quarterback as well. And I know he knows your system and he's a perfect fit that way. But uh, this guy's got some, you know, got potential to be a really a good one. And he agreed. And he said, well, he'll be okay in the third. Well, <laughs> First round goes, Joe's still there. Second round goes, he's still there. Third round, and we're, we're counting, we're crossing our fingers now as our draft pick comes up. Years later, and he was there when we take Joe Montana in the third round, which shows you a little bit about how smart the NFL is and how uh, sophisticated their breakdowns are. Uh, you take gambles sometimes that you can get a guy here, but you won't be there later, and you manipulate, sometimes move up. But... Years later, Bart Starr told me we were playing in a golf tournament in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the Lombardi tournament. And um, he said, you know, when you drafted Joe Montana, we were is it between Joe Montana and an offensive lineman that we were going to take in the next pick. We were the next pick after you. And so we're arguing and screaming and hollering, you know, what, what to do <laughs> and whether to move up and get in front of you because we thought you might take a quarterback. And we had Steve DeBerg. That's, that was a returning quarterback in San Francisco. And he said, finally, the offensive line coach won the battle. We, we ended up taking him. And I'm sorry, they were the pick before us. And they took the lineman and then we took Joe Montana. Otherwise, he would have been another in the long line of great Green Bay Packer quarterbacks. That's the way the league, you know, that's probably a thousand stories like that in the in the annals of the draft. But Joey was really good. We fed him in slowly but surely. We would say, Joe, you're going to play the first series in the second quarter. So you just be ready. I don't care what the score is. We're okay. field position, whatever. Steve's our starter, a veteran, good guy. We can win with him, but we got to get you ready. Yeah. And um, as the season went along, he played more and more. And in year two, he was virtually our starter. Yeah. Uh, but in year one, I tell people when they, when they look at that Super Bowl ring with all those diamonds on it, I say, you know, people ask me, how many how many wins did y'all get to? How many? victories to win that ring. And I said, man, that's not the question at all. It's how many games did we have to lose before we were good enough to win this ring? And then I go through it. The first year we're there, we go 2-14. and 14. We lost 14 games. The next year, we're 6-10. and 10. Now we've lost 24 games. And in the third year, we only lose three and win the Super Bowl. We lost 27 games before we were good enough to win this Super Bowl ring. And um, that makes the point that, you know, the good teams, the really championship teams, win by never making or losing a game the same way twice. If you lose a game because you blow a coverage, you work on that coverage all week long, you're not going to lose it that way. And pretty soon you fill up all the weak spots in your offense or defense and special teams, and you start to look like a championship team. Now, 
when you're there with Bill Walsh, he's innovative with the West Coast offense. Mm-hmm. But then you're developing this no huddle offense that you you described earlier and you implemented in Cincinnati. So were you guys working together and bouncing ideas off of each other? And how did you come up with this no huddle idea? Yeah, the no huddle really was not part of what we had was what we called 49er offense. And then the media picked it up and called it the West Coast offense. And then it became the West Coast. We still scratch our heads about that. (laughs) Um, In fact, we we joked about it the night before the Super Bowl in 19 after the 1981 season, just Bill and staff meetings over. Everybody's left. Bill and I are still sitting there. I mean, we were we were close friends. I just reiterated that. And we sat there and. Bill had a glass of wine. I wasn't too sure about drinking a glass of wine before the game. I wanted a clear head, but he just had one glass of wine. But we were sitting there and reminiscing and uh, all these things we've been talking about. But um, the no huddle was not part of the game at that time. That was just the West Coast offense with a great quarterback. And Dwight Clark from Clemson was a receiver that had put us in that Super Bowl about, right. against the Dallas Cowboys in the NFC Championship yeah, game. broke my heart. I was, I'm a Cowboys fan. <laughs> I broke a lot of Cowboy fans' hearts. because I didn't realize what a rivalry that was, but it's it, NFL Films has it in one of the top ten rivalries in the history of, yeah. foot of the NFL. But um, – um, we got, you know, went to bed and the next morning we come back and we win that game against Cincinnati in Detroit, snowbound Detroit. And um, two years later, I get an opportunity to go to Indiana University as a head coach, and I did. Yep. And then a year after that, Paul Brown offers me the job in Cincinnati because Bart Starr is fired in Green Bay. Forrest Gregg goes to Green Bay for his dream job, okay. leaving Cincinnati job open. And I turned PB down, Paul Brown down, everybody okay. call him PB, yeah. call, uh, turned him down four times. And the fourth time, I cried. I actually said, Paul, you don't want to cry, baby, for a head coach. I said, I, I, but I, I just went to Indiana. I just signed a, you know, a yeah. multi-year contract. We've just raised $12 million, which we did that first year that I was there. We had to build a facility to compete with Ohio State and Purdue and all the teams in the Big Ten in terms of recruiting. Yeah. And because we were in Assembly Hall, and half of it was Bobby Nice. Enclave, and the other half belonged to all the other sports, and we were just kind of thrown in there football-wise. And so we upgraded that, and I said, I just can't leave. And I go back to my office, and I'm sitting there in, in Assembly Hall, and Bobby comes in, Bobby Knight, slams the door like the way he always came in. But he uh, says, well, what are you? What are you doing? I mean, what's, what's what are you thinking here? If you're here ten years and you win, you know, six or seven Big Ten titles and maybe a national championship or two, where do you go next? You go to the NFL. And by the way, you're not going to do that well here. <laughs> I replaced Lee Corso, and then they'd had some tough years uh, prior to my coming there. But anyway. Um, Bobby and I meant well, and, and he is a good friend, and I appreciate everything he was trying to do. He wasn't trying to run me off. He was trying to make help me make a, a decision. I ended up taking the job in Cincinnati, and um, that was in 1984. And um, then I went back to a incident that I had. Now, you asked me the question about the no huddle. Here, I'm getting to the answer. No, that's all right. I love hearing uh, when I was uh, in San Francisco, we signed as a free agent a, a wide receiver named Ronaldo Nehemiah, Skeets Nehemiah. He was really a track guy playing fast. football. Yeah, he hit six world records at world records at one time in the hurdles and the sprints. 
So he could he could spread the defense, no question about it. One day at practice, he I'm not sure he'll even remember this, but boy, I sure do. He ran a go pattern, and on the way back, he's breathing heavy through his mouth, you know, <sighs> coming back. He just I said, Skeets, what's the matter, man? I thought you were some kind of world-class athlete. You're breathing like a racehorse. And he taught me a life lesson. He looked me square in the eye and he said, Coach, I'm breathing heavy because I just ran 60 yards as fast as I can run it. And I said, okay. And But then he said, give me about four or five more seconds and I'll be breathing through my nose again. What he was saying was, I will have recovered from that run and I'll be not be breathing through my mouth sucking in a lot of wind. I'll be back to normal, ready for the next play. And as a coach, think... I'm saying to myself, well, you know, that's that's basically he's saying that conditioning is recovery time. If I can recover faster than you from the previous play, I'm in better condition, football condition than you are. And that just stayed with me. I said, how in the world could you change the tempo of the game? You don't have to run a hurry up. The no huddle was never a hurry up idea. It was a threat of a hurry up so that the defense couldn't substitute. They couldn't rest between plays while we were resting. We knew the snap count. And um, I just stuck with me that the thing you do is you eliminate the huddle. That's the one part of the game that's easy enough to do. I don't know who said you have to go eight yards behind the ball and caucus for 20 seconds and let the defense get all rested up for the next play. But we did that. We took that out of the game plan from the very beginning. We even called the first play and change of possession from the sideline. We didn't go to the huddle even after change of possession. But um, as a result, the no huddle confused a lot of people. They couldn't get the substitutions in. You could watch their players start to get fatigued. You could tell by the way they stood there. I always tell the players, if they're standing there and their first sign of fatigue is is breathing through their mouth rather than their nose, second sign of fatigue is when they put their hands on their hips with their thumbs forward. If you do like your thumbs backwards, you're saying, hey, bring it on. You put your thumbs forward, you're saying, I'm too tired, I'm trying to hold myself up. Third sign of fatigue is putting your hands behind your helmet and trying to open your chest up so you can get a little more air. And then, of course, the final sign of fatigue is when you slap the side of your helmet and say, get me out of here, I got nothing left. (laughs) And we had a lot of that, too. But um, that was the start of the no huddle. But I I hear people call it the hurry up all the time. It was never a hurry up. It was a threat of a hurry up. And on occasion, it became a hurry up. If, you know, they were really getting fatigued, we just turned it on. And we had two or three plays that had just one word, uh, memorization okay. of the play. They knew the formation, the play, the snap count was built into that one word. And you, Boomer, would yell out, set alert, set alert, for example. Two words, I guess. Um, but set was reminding them, ready, set. The ball's going to be snapped on yeah. set. Alert, alert, here we go. We're going right to the line. The ball's coming up. And it was a pass play, but we always had somebody go deep. We had somebody coming across. We had somebody with a little zone, kind of sit down and slide. And many times we scored touchdowns on the deep pass because there was nobody even covering him. They were going back into their huddle, defensive huddle, and we snapped the ball and God just jogs on down the field for a touchdown. But the fans of Cincinnati loved it. I'm telling you, it became a big hit. Hurt concessions somewhat because nobody wanted to leave. They're afraid they missed a touchdown. <laughs> we scored a lot of points. One year we scored 61 points against Houston, 50 points against the Dallas Cowboys. I remember uh, those we, we had some good. We had some good ones, but we had great players. I mean, it wasn't yeah. the, the scheme may have helped some, but we had a terrific quarterback who had come into his own, replacing an all who I think should be in the Hall of Fame, Kenny Anderson, and um, an offensive line that 
I don't think anybody had a better one. Maybe somebody had one as good, but we had a great offensive line, start, starting with Anthony Munoz at left tackle and right on down the line. And then we had speed at wide receivers. We had running backs with Icky Woods and the Icky Shuffle, and that yes. got to be a very popular icon, yeah, because <laughs> every time he scored and he broke into that shuffle, and it wasn't an in-your-face kind of a deal. In fact, he was turned into the stands, and, right. and the stands were doing it. Paul Brown actually did it one time and got caught on camera. He got caught up in the game, but it made the game exciting. We were fun to watch. We packed them in there for I don't know how many in a row. It was several years in a row you couldn't get a seat, and uh, that hadn't always been the case in Cincinnati because they were, uh, you know, you got to win to get everybody there. But uh, they were great years. We went to Super Bowl twenty three and lost the heartbreaker to the San Francisco 49ers. We talked about that. And then a few years later, Something about didn't win enough games or something. They fired me. <laughs> this was the year that Paul Brown passed away, by the okay. way. And it was th- that summer he died prior to this the year that I was fired. And I can remember Mike Brown taking me over to his house and before we went to training camp and sit, you know, having a chance to visit with Paul. But he was very weak and with the oxygen, um, you know, in the nose and, and trying to make sure that he got enough oxygen. And I'm expecting, I don't know what I'm expecting, but I want, I'm going to try to say something encouraging if I can. He wouldn't even let me get started. He said, now, Sam, you remember, tell the guys to do this, make sure they, they're ready for this. All football. That's all he was thinking about was his Bengals and, and the success of that team. And Paul was a great guy. I regret, one of my biggest regrets in football is that I didn't go down there every morning in the off season okay. when his office was at one end of the hall and I was at the other. And just take a styrofoam cup of coffee and sit down yeah. and say, PB, turn it loose, babe. I don't care what you got. Talk about it. I just want to soak it in. And I did it a lot, but I yeah. should have done it every day. And uh, and Paul was one of those kind of guys who would have loved to yeah. to share. I mean, sure. he was he was helpful. <laughs> they gave me a chance as a player, signed me as a player for $11,000 <laughs> back in 68, and then uh, signed me later as a coach and were persistent in doing that because I, right. I did. I turned them turned down, down four times, and then uh, I guess the crying got to me, <laughs> to, along with the advice. And the people in Indiana were terrific. The athletic director, Ralph Floyd, and the president all said, Sam, we, we understand. You can't pass this up, you know. Yeah. And then from Cincinnati, then it's off to Tampa Bay. Yeah, after the firing, it wasn't wasn't long, less than yeah. a week, I think. And and uh, actually, uh, Bill Parcells had agreed to a contract, and then when they went to sign it, he asked for another million bucks. Oh, wow. and yeah, okay. and and so uh, Hugh Culverhouse, the owner, said uh, that's that's when he got left at the altar. You know, he was ready to sign. They had thought they had an agreement, yeah. and then it went up when they went to sign it, and he walked away and. Uh, a guy named Dave Lapham, who'd been an offensive lineman for the Cincinnati Bengals and was now their radio um, broadcast analyst for the games okay. uh, in Cincinnati, call, called me. We had a little place down in the Florida Keys that we had purchased during um, my coaching career. And we were, <clears throat> we were down there, and, and Lapham called me and said, call the Buccaneers. They're trying to find you. They're trying to locate you. I don't know how he knew that, but he did. And he gave me the number. <laughs> And I, was, I bet I walked across that room 10 times and reached for the phone. They said, nah, I'm not calling them. If they want me, they'll find me you know, if they really want me. Yeah. Then I, my pride was getting in my way there okay. a little bit. But I finally picked up the phone, called, put me right through to Hugh Culverhouse. Hugh Culverhouse says, yes, we've been looking. We you know, want to talk to you. We'd like to uh, 
do it. We'll meet in this private location okay. and um, not get the media chatting. And uh, in that one sit down, when you got up, big barrel chested guy, very, you know, kind of took charge in that room. But he reached out with his big old meaty hand that he had and, and pulled me in tight to him and said, you're my next coach. And I said, well, to myself, I haven't talked money yet here, buddy. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I'll take, you know, 80% of what you offered Bill Parcells. I don't know what it was, but I'm sure it was good. But we didn't. But we we, uh, we signed a five-year deal, and, and uh, the team got better. It really did. Our yeah. defense got better. We drafted Warren Sapp and Derek Brooks and John Lynch and yeah. uh, had some great players. On defense, we missed on Trendell for a little bit. He wasn't quite ready to play. And um, so the last year I was there, we were 7-9, and nine, which was the best record they'd had in 15 years. And it had gotten better by a game every year. And we were, we thought we were, you know, we were, in fact, we lost five games that year by three points or less. Had we won those five games, or four games, excuse me, four games. Had we won those four games, we'd have been 11-5 and five yeah. in, in the playoffs for sure. Probably saved my job and no telling how much longer I would have been able to Keep coach in Tampa because I loved it down there. Yeah. I'm a private pilot. I've had several airplanes and I had my airplane right there on within bike riding distance from my house and at a general aviation airport. Yeah. And um, it was a great place to live. We really enjoyed that part okay. of it. When you get fired, then is it the realization that I've probably run my course of being mm -hmm. a head coach and what other opportunities are there for me or what were you thinking at well, that time? Um, I really didn't know what was going to happen, but before I could even give much thought to it, I got a bouquet of flowers from NBC saying, "Enjoy the recruiting." Okay. <laughs> they were they were going to um, recruit, or they wanted me to come be an analyst. And I ended up signing with NBC. I talked right. to several people, but I ended you up signing okay. with NBC. And Marv Albert was my first mentor what a great mentor he is i'm telling you you couldn't right. get better and let me hear a quick story We're yes, my first game jacksonville florida pittsburgh steelers of the visiting team a guy named uh, bubby brister is the quarterback and um during the course of the thing i'm i'm a little nervous but it's my first game and marv is calming me down and he, i make the comment during the game that if i say this if if uh Pittsburgh, or if Jacksonville wants to win this ball game, they're going to have to blitz Bubby Brister some more. They can't sit back and let him pick them apart. And Marv gave me this strange look, and when the went to a commercial break, he yanked his headset off, and he said, if Jacksonville wants to win, he better blitz. You think they don't want to win? It's in order for them to win, they need to blitz more. I said, excuse me, I'm telling you. Um, but Marv was that good. He was that, uh, you know, he had to— those little things, right? Listened to everything you said and, and measured them and, and played back and set you up for another good comment, you know. Okay. He was a great partner to have. And Kevin Harlan, who's my partner with CBS, was exactly the same way. Right. In fact, Kevin and Marvin are—if you listen to them on, on the air, you can hardly tell them apart. And so in how many years did you do the broadcasting now? Well, really seven during seven years. But I I had a a doctor in uh, Greenville okay. that uh, severed my laryngeal nerve after uh, an operation a biopsy of my lymph nodes. Oh. It went in the wrong place in my chest and okay. severed my which paralyzed my left vocal cord, which destroyed my. It's hard to be a broadcaster when you can't talk, <laughs> and so uh, yes. uh, you know sign language won't work on the radio or TV, but. Um, I would 
uh, we were, Jane and I, my wife Jane and I were flying back from Chicago. I'd replaced Walter Payton in the booth for the Chicago Bears preseason games okay. because their preseason play-by-play was Kevin Harlan, who was going to be my partner during the regular season. And um, I'm flying my P-Baron back uh, from Chicago to Greenville. And uh, we land, and as when I get out, I have chest pains. We go to the hospital. They say everything looks okay. We're not sure what it is. We get home. The phone's ringing. Get back. Don't stop. You've got blood clots in your lungs, and your lymph nodes are enlarged, and you're, you're AFib, your arterial fibrillation. Your heart's irregular. And I said, man, any other good news? <laughs> and they said, just come on back. Uh, you know, don't wait around, though. This one may or may not be serious. And um, that's when the biopsy, I had four doctors standing around the, the hospital bed, and three of them said, we don't need to do the biopsy yet. Let the, the lymph nodes are there to protect you from, you know, infections and different things that attack your body. Let's give them a few days. And then the third, fourth doctor said, all right, if you want to give cancer a chance to grow for four days more in case it's lymphoma cancer. And boy, that threw a scare into me. I said, well, you know, it's a pretty easy operation, right? Well, it turned out he had never done it before. Uh, Admitted later that he had never, didn't review his notes, that he observed the operation once and didn't review the notes. And so he went in the wrong place, severed my laryngeal nerve, and that was it. Um, so... They tried to get me back in, but that one year, my seventh year, was kind of an off-and-on year because I they tried me in the third man in the booth, uh, being kind of like a guest. You know, I'd come in two or three times in the game. CBS was great to me. They were okay. terrific. And uh, at any rate, uh, that was the end of broadcasting yeah. um, because of my voice. I later, because of surgeries and <clears throat> some great doctors, um, Got my voice back to what you're hearing now, but I don't have a lot of volume. Yeah. And I did some games for Fox Sports South for the college games and for Furman and Southern Conference games. And, I, and I've gotten back in it a little bit, but not, not to the level of the NFL. Okay. Just not, my voice may not hold up. What have you enjoyed more, coaching or broadcasting? Oh, that I enjoyed? I have to say I enjoy having that scoreboard up there, okay. and that means you got to coach to yeah. win. And, and the uncertainty of the game and the uncertainty of the play of each player or the success or lack of success of every play you call or the defense you call or fake punt on the 20-yard line, which what we did against Houston when we were leading about 48 to nothing at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but we just we were one of those days we knew anything we did was going to work, work. It just, and it did. Uh, we had a— we had a day that day. But, um, yeah, coaching was the first love. Okay. Broadcasting, though, was real close second. Okay. I mean, real close. It wouldn't, if, it, if it ended up being that way, I could still be doing it. And uh, I don't know that I would have been coaching because that scoreboard will catch up with you eventually. Well, speaking of medical things that have happened in your life, you've also had another big situation with a heart transplant. Yeah. And I'm not sure— a whole lot of people know a lot of the details because it was just recent, back in 2016. So tell us that whole story. Okay. I, well, it started, I have uh, contracted cardiomyopathy back in early 2000, 2001, somewhere in there. Cardiomyopathy is a heart disease that slowly deteriorates your heart and the effectiveness of your heart and, and kills your heart, basically. Okay. And two out of three people die in year one of that survivor uh, only 50% of them live more than a couple of years after that. Okay. So I, I was, that was in 2001, let's say, 15 years, 16 years later, I'm still upright and yeah. aggravating everybody. So I uh, 
um, was beating the odds on that one. But I was it's a Sunday afternoon, late August. I'm cutting down some tree limbs in the in the yard because we'd had a hailstorm, okay. freak hailstorm in South Carolina. But uh, I got that brand new chainsaw and I got it up there and I'm kind of I get a little vertigo, a little bit dizzy. I'm saying, man, this is, you know, if I were to pass out with this chainsaw going right above me, I could drop this thing and ruin a That's brand new chainsaw. <laughs> no, no, I was worried about the chainsaw. I wasn't worried about it. Uh, but anyway, that's the way I think. Um, but I, uh, you know, put everything away and I went inside and Jane said, what's the matter? And she never notices me whether I'm coming or going anyway, but this time she did. So it must have been something I, I was giving off uh, signals. And she took me to the uh, my cardiologist who immediately diagnosed and put me in the hospital, who imme- that hospital immediately diagnosed that I had uh, a serious heart problem. And I went to the Carolinas Medical Center in Charlotte. Um, and uh, they told me you, I had two to five days to live. And I'm saying, you know, could you start off with, hello, how you doing? Having a good day, are you? Yeah. Or something like that. But no. That's got to uh, be a tough message to hear. Yeah. Well, it was a Sunday that, you know, went in, got all the testing done on Monday morning. It's when they came in and said, you know, the tests are back. And Sam, this your heart's in worse shape than we thought. But it had been around 15 years with cardiomyopathy. That's and, right. Um, you know, I'd already, I'd already beating the odds there, but they said two to five days is about what we think you've got left unless we get a heart. And uh, right now we don't have a heart, but we're going to prep you. We're going to keep you in the hospital here and we're going to prep you ready to go. So if one comes available, you're re- you know, you're ready to wheel down to the operating room. Well, I've got on my calendar that, that week, I've got the word no heart on Monday, no heart on Tuesday, no heart Wednesday, Thursday, no heart Friday, no heart Friday's the fifth day, and uh, they come in, and I said, look, I don't want that LVAD pump, which is a big pump. You have to carry batteries around on the shoulder harness. Okay. And I said, I just don't think I want to live that way. I, I'm, guys, give me the rest of the weekend, would you? you know, something might happen. Weekends, it was holiday weekend, Patriots weekend, Patriots Day on Monday, okay. a holiday. Uh, people celebrating, do crazy things and statistically more organs are available on holiday weekends because okay. people are get careless and anyway saturday no heart sunday no heart monday no heart and now i'm the eighth day i'm eight days away from five days being as long as i could make it and the doctor comes in in the morning and says sam we're going to We've already made arrangements with hospice, and we're going to send you home and let you rest comfortably in your bed for as long as necessary. But make sure you call your loved ones and, and talk to them because, Sam, being honest with you, you're not going to live through this through the night. You know, this is your last day. And um, so I'm saying, okay, yeah. And and my boss from Tampa Bay, Steve Story, who is a um, Hugh Culverhouse's right arm, uh, had flown up just to be with me that day. Okay. We we had become very good friends, and okay. so he'd flown up from Tampa just to be with me for a day. And my college roommate Billy Turner was uh, from Furman was there. I think he had just left when this news came in, but they were all supporting me. And then at, here's the eerie part. So it's, a, it's just before lunch. I think when they're coming in, they're and say they found a heart, and then yeah. said so they say hospice, which I knew what that meant, and. Um, about five o'clock, the doctor comes in with a smile on his face. 
Now, let me give you a little background. In Cincinnati, Ohio, about seven hours a drive away from Charlotte, on one side of town at Purcell Marion High School, my son is a coach and a, play, and a um, teacher, okay. computer science and, and a football and wrestling coach up there. It, practice ends at, a, at 5 o'clock. He calls the team together and says, guys, uh, I want you to pray for my dad because he's not going to make it through the night. It looks like he's in this last day. Well, as soon as we, they got in a circle on one knee, all the parents started taking pictures, figuring I'd croaked because <laughs> they've been following every day in the paper and every day on the evening news. They had an update on how I was doing. I mean, okay. it, it was, uh, you know, it was a newsy item up there. And of course, I had a lot of That's friends. Right. So on the other side of town now, at Moeller High School in Cincinnati, my grandson, Sammy, finishes practice at 5 o'clock, which is, I guess, a kind of a Catholic League rule, calls the team together and said, I want you to pray for my granddad, who's not going to you know, be here tomorrow. And they got in a circle on one knee and started to pray. Cameras again, mm-hmm. <laughs> taking pictures, figuring I croaked, you know, from the way they were acting. Then that doctor at five o'clock comes in and says, Sam, this is a miracle. This is like a one in a million chance. A guy your size or person your size, man or woman, could be be a large woman, but still. Um, Person your size, and it has to be your size because your heart's the size of your fist, and that heart has to be the size that would fit into you and do a good job. But And your blood type, A positive. We've got a, a surgeon on a plane right now, going up to get it. That was a mistake for him to say going up, because when he said up, it meant north to me. Okay. North of Charlotte's Pittsburgh Steeler territory. <laughs> I'm afraid I may have a Steeler heart in me, Steeler fan's heart in me. I may have to buy a terrible towel after all. But um, um, they said, now it's gonna be close. Let me just tell you, it's two hours up there, two hours back. We gotta get it in your chest in four hours, so if there's, Traffic jam, if the, you know, they can't promise anything. I don't want you to get too excited about this, but um, that's it. Power of prayer works, I will tell you that. Uh, I, had, yes, I had people praying for me all over the country. They had, we had hundreds of thousands, not tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of hits on my website and my Facebook yeah. saying they were praying for me. My favorite one was I'm a school teacher, I'm a third grade teacher in Central. Uh, elementary school in Oklahoma City, and the first thing we do every morning is pray for you. Well, you know, a lot of schools, you're not even allowed to say the word prayer or God or Jesus, for goodness sakes, don't say that. But anyway, um, that was that was the background of it. And then, you know, I kind of lost consciousness at some point in there, and uh, I had a couple of other friends that spent the night with me um, that night because the Operation really didn't take place until 2.30 in the morning. And uh, I guess the heart was so strong that it survived the extra time. Yeah. And they said it was the other miracle that happened. Number one, the miracle to find it. And the other miracle is it was a perfect fit. There, you didn't have to go into your leg, get a vessel to make it fit or anything. Had we had to do that, I don't think you'd have made it. In fact, we didn't even think you'd make it from the trauma of it because you were so weak. The left side of your heart had not beat for over an hour. The other side was barely beating, and then we had the pump helping it, you know, trying to keep you alive until the heart got there. Anyway, heart gets in there. They do a great job, and it's all put in there. And the next thing I know, I wake up, and I feel like a million bucks. (laughs) I couldn't believe how good I felt. Yeah. And it was a couple of days later, really, before I became lucid. And um, 
started walking, you know, the exercises, they start out, you just walk a few steps up and down the hallway. Yeah. And then after a couple of days, you go up the steps back and forth. Yeah. But three weeks and five days after that surgery on September the 13th, 2016, I rode 15 miles on my bicycle in the doodle trail between Pickens and Easley, um, South Carolina. I just felt so good. I had it's the, oh, it was, the whole thing's a miracle. And it, it is amazing that that I found such a strong heart for one thing because it would have taken that to compensate for my weakness during that okay. that moment. Right. And I don't know what, you know, I don't know anything about the donor, by the way. I was going to ask that's you the that. way. So yeah. that's just, is that standard protocol that mm-hmm. you never find out? Yeah. Well, no, you, you, you don't find out until the donor family is ready to meet you or to I talk to you on the phone or okay. now you can exchange letters because I'm a number, they're a number, I don't know, and you send it to a clearinghouse and they com- they connect the numbers. So I've mailed it to them and they just said they're not ready. So obviously yeah. this person died unexpectedly because yeah. they are still in mourning. And they've written me back another letter saying, we do want to meet you sometime and we want to see, you know, how you're doing and listen to that heart and that kind of thing. That's right. Uh, And I said, I told them, listen, I'm taking really good care of this heart. I'm eating right. I'm doing the exercise. I'm riding my bike, you know, a lot. And I haven't got my upper body yet because you got to wait on that sternum to make sure it's sealed. But yes. I'm about in my seventh month. I'm about ready to start doing some upper body weight okay. work, get my uh, weight back up to around 215, maybe not okay. quite 220 like I lived for 35 years. Yeah. And um, wait for them to say, I, I want to meet you. I can't wait to meet them. That's an yeah. amazing story. It is. Yeah. And how about this? A guy named Rod Carew, great baseball oh, player, yes. Minnesota Twins, batting champion. Right. Um, all-star player and Hall of Famer. He calls me one day out of the blue and says, I just read your story in one of the L.A. papers, and um, uh, I'm waiting for a heart. I've been waiting for almost two months now. Can you tell me something? Tell me what you went through when I hear your side. And so we have become phone buddies back and forth, and hopefully I know that I'm already— scheduled to ride in the Rose Bowl parade this coming year on the donor float. Okay. And hopefully they'll get Rod Crude, because his story is even more spectacular. We're a, a young kid at about nine or 10 years old that he befriended. Uh, and that young kid then chose Rod Crew as his idol. And that young kid later became a tight end for the Baltimore Ravens, died yep. while, he, while Rod Crew's waiting for a heart. And that's the heart that is in Rod Carew right now. It's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's once everybody's got a different story, that's and they're right. all, they all are amazing. Yes. Uh, mainly just from the fact of the doctors being capable of doing what they do. I mean, I agree. it's a very fragile, uh, unforgiving operation, and uh, and but they really miss. But uh, at Carolina's medical center, they're about ninety-five plus percent successful. That's, That's pretty good odds. That is very good odds. Mm-hmm. Well, Coach Weish, I know we've explored a lot today. And again, I thank you for your, your time and exploring all of this and sharing all these great details. And definitely looking forward to your book, Third and Forever. Yeah. Uh, I know it's coming out this summer. But as we wrap things up, you've been in sports all your life. So how would you sum up the impact of sports in your life? 
Well, the, the the team aspect of it is some sports are individual sports. You know, yeah. golf is, for example, uh, even though you're on a team, you're out there by yourself. But the team sports where you depend on other players and you're depending on them to be ready okay. and you're depending on them not only to be ready but in condition and having a good attitude that they're excited about the game and they want to win the ball game. And I've already said to you one time, one comment that uh, I – tell the players all the time, the great teams now, the champions don't lose two games the same way. And we're not going to, if we blow something, we're going to fix it. That's one thing. And then I asked the team at the beginning of the season, I say, guys, how many of you want to win? And they all raise their hand. They're not stupid. <laughs> coach, head coach asked if you want to win. You're not going to say, yeah, not really, but when, when do we get paid? Yeah. Uh, but anyway, they all raise their hand. I said, put your hands down now. I'm going to ask you another one. How many of you want to be part of the reason we're going to win. Boomer Siason always helped me. He would raise his hand and say, what do you mean by that part of the reason? And um, I, I, does that mean I've got to run more laps, lift more weights, study more film, take yeah. more notes, practice harder? What? Yes, Boomer. It means you've got to do all of those things. <laughs> you've got to give it your best shot. You only get 16 tries in the NFL and then a playoff opportunity. And you've got to play your very best every Sunday. So, yeah, if you're going to be part of the reason. And by the way, boys and girls, and I look at some of the players that are marginal players that you probably aren't going to play very much during the season, I say you're just as important to this team's chances of winning as Boomer Esiason, the starting quarterback. Because if you don't give them a good picture all week, if you don't push them all week so that they have a good reaction time to what's going to happen on Sunday – our odds go down to winning. You're part of the reason we win, even though you're not in the game. It's, it's because you're part of And I think in businesses, I say it to them all the time when I speak, you've got employees that don't feel like they're as much a part of it. They don't make, they're not the decision makers. And sometimes they need to be reinforced that you're part of the reason we have a good operation here, buddy. You're part of the reason that we are making a profit. And I just want you to know we, we recognize it and appreciate it. For sure. Yeah. And then the last thing, uh, as we'll finish up here, I always ask everybody some words of wisdom that you can share that's been impactful in your life. Do you have any words that you'd like to share with the listeners? Well, there, you know, there's so many, honestly. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to tell you one quick short story. Please. And there, there's a punchline, more than words of wisdom, I think. But um, I spoke at the in Canton, Ohio, at the— um, uh, Hall of Fame. We had a clinic up there, about 700, 750 kids, a lot of them three, four, five-star players, okay. really good players. And I, they, they go for a week, and five days, I guess it is. And then uh, uh, the last day, or the last full day, they go out in the morning, we dehydrate them good, we run them around a lot for a couple hours, and then we come in, we pack their stomachs full of food, and then they say, here's Sam. <laughs> and I'm supposed to make this closing talk to them. Well, crud, I wanted to go to sleep. I was, <laughs> I was uh, set up, too. But we had one group of, of players over there from uh, one school and uh, all together, and they were feeling the peer pressure from each other to make sure I knew that they weren't going to pay attention. They, they were not, this was not something you can't make me pay attention. That's right. And one kid was just giving, he was giving the loud, you know, yawn and everything. And I called him, I said, come on up here, my man. I want you to sit right here and put your finger on my notes and make sure I don't miss one point for the rest of the time. Okay. got through with all that, and I reached down, and I've got a microphone on there, about 700 people in the audience. Yeah. 
I reach down with the microphone on so it's amplified, and I whisper in it, kind of whisper in his ear. I say, I love you. <laughs> now, he looks over at his buddies now, and the peer pressure is really mounting. They're all looking, what's he going to do now? And I said, no, 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 no. I love you. I said it a second time. And he's looking back and forth, and he's trying to be cool and, you know, whatever. And then I start down the third time to do it, and he says, all right, all right, I love you too. <laughs> he laughed. But the punchline was that the next day, uh, we it was the kick, you know, go-home day. We uh, all assembled down around the – and took pictures and that kind of thing with the coaches and their teammates. And – he breaks ranks as they walk out on the field and comes over to me and just kind of in my ears says, I love you, <laughs> and walks away. <laughs> I don't know. It was like time stood still. It was one of those moments that you say, you know what, I, I just wonder if there was a breakthrough right there that, yes. that maybe we'll, he'll remember for a long time. Um, so that's one. And then the other one I want to pair with it is and I was speaking at a school for where they take the kids that are disruptive in class. They put them in here, and they try to – bring them around, send them back. Usually they come back two or three times, yeah. 35 or so in the classroom. I'm speaking to them. I do my little magic tricks that I do, and I tell them, you know, if you'll shut up and pay attention, put your cell phones away and listen to me, I might say something that will make, make a difference for you. Well, as I'm doing it, I notice this one kid who is not well-dressed, his clothes are dirty, he's obviously not uh, doesn't have a very much of a home life. You can almost see it in his face. I uh, don't know when he last washed his hair or anything like that. It was one of those situations where you could pick him out of a lineup. And, but he had his head down, but every now and then he'd look up over his eyebrow and, and stare at me. Never said anything, never turned his head, nothing. Just stood there. I mean, sat there. And when it was over, I went over to him and I said, I stuck my hand out and I said, you know, like, where's your hand? And he looked at me like, I'm not shaking your hand. <laughs> I said, no, 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 I just want to thank you. I said, you know, this is a tough crowd right here I was talking to, but I focused in on you because I could tell you were really paying attention to me. And that kept me going, man. I, if it hadn't been for you, I don't think I could have finished this speech, and I just wanted to thank you. And finally, he reluctantly put his hand out there and shook my hand. And I turned back to the principal who's right behind me with the counselor. And she says, I don't believe that. And I said, what's the matter? And she said, Jimmy, that's not his real name, but Jimmy is smiling. He has never smiled here. All he ever says is, I'm not going to do it. I don't care. You can't make me, uh, you know, one of those attitudes. Yes. And then she said, I don't believe that. And she's looking now at the... Uh, kids leaving the room she says he's still smiling and looking back to see if you're looking at him just as he goes out and here's what struck me with that i'll bet you that kid maybe never or rarely had somebody thank him for him doing something for somebody else in other words recognize that you really helped somebody and you know that's that's a very rewarding comment for somebody to hear for the first time and it was something he couldn't hold back a smile from so i tell my my coaches and uh, my players, you know, the thank yous don't go unnoticed, and the I love yous pay dividends, so do it. Very powerful, sir. Those are great words of wisdom, so I greatly appreciate that. And again, ultimately, thank you so much for the time today. What a wonderful opportunity of hearing your journey, and I greatly appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. And when do I get my check? That's right. <laughs> That's in the mail. <laughs> in the mail. All right. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. I know it's a little bit longer than some of the other interviews, but Sam has such great stories and is a gifted storyteller. I just enjoyed listening to the bond that him and Bill Walsh had from the early days, just from when he was a player all the way to when they were coaching together and against each other, the connection with Joe Montana, and hearing the career advice he gets from Bobby Knight, just absolutely fantastic. And I'm also very excited about his book, Third and Forever, to be released in a few weeks. So make sure you're on the lookout for that. And another thing that is near and dear to Sam's heart, no pun intended, is his passion to help create the awareness of organ donation. As you heard in the interview, one of the biggest things in his life is obviously the heart transplant that he received, and it was all because of organ donation. It saved his life, and it can save the countless numbers of others' lives. So please visit the Donate Life of America website at donatelife.net to find out more information about how you can become a donor or make a contribution and find state-specific chapters of Donate Life. And you can also visit lifelinkfound.org, another organ donation site, and also lifeshareharolinas.org. All of those are great foundations for organ donations, so please take advantage of that and find out more information. All right, everyone, let's wrap things up with the weekly words of wisdom. Keeping encouragement and motivation rich. Keeping encouragement and motivation rich. Let's explore the weekly words of wisdom. This week we'll be focusing on some words from an unknown author. And even though this is an unknown person, their words are just as powerful as if they were coming from a sports personality or someone famous. So let's take a listen to these words. If you do not go after what you want, you'll never have it. If you do not ask, the answer will always be no. If you do not step forward, you will always be in the same place. So everyone, don't be afraid to take the risk, even though life can't be viewed with a crystal ball and you might not know the future. The unknown is okay. And now this episode comes to a close. I can't thank you enough for listening. Please again remember to follow me on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. You can email me, Richmond at richtakeonsports.com. Go to our website, richtakeonsports.com. Again, you can listen, download, and subscribe via iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, whatever format that you want to listen to. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening.